Well, it is exciting for me to be back in the book of James with you all today. And uh, today we're going to be picking back up in the first chapter of James, covering verses 9 through 11. So just a couple quick reminders about the book of James. If you remember, James is writing what is most likely the earliest book in the New Testament. He is instructing the early church on how they are to live faithfully in the world. He's he's asking the question, answering the question, what does true faith look like? And especially, what does it look like in the face of difficult circumstances, trials, And we can tell from the overall context of the book that James understands those that he is writing to are suffering from various trials, among which uh, persecution and poverty seem to be two of the most significant. And you can see both of those themes just kind of weaving their way throughout the entirety of the book and in the context of trials in particular in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, as we've discussed before, is recognized as the introduction to the book, and the entire section really is supposed to be read with the response of the believer to trials in mind. So, let's go ahead and begin this morning by reminding ourselves of the context and reading that entire section of chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, before we key in on verses 9 through 11. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift And every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. 
If you remember when we looked at verses 2 through 4 a few months ago, we were reminded about how believers are supposed to view trials, that God really does give them to us for our good and for our growth in Christ-likeness. Now, this doesn't mean that the actual circumstances of the trials are good in and of themselves. We don't want to say that. Trials are always the result of living in a fallen world and many times are a direct result of sin. And we know that sin is not good. But God does put us through trials so that our faith will grow stronger, so that steadfastness will be produced which will lead to the spiritual maturity that all believers, all true believers, really long for most in this life. Our greatest desire as Christians is to become more like Jesus Christ, and God desires to do that for us. And trials are the primary means for that. But... As we also talked about, just knowing that is true and believing that God is using our trials this way doesn't just automatically make it easy and joyful for us to go through trials. So in verses 5 through 8, James helps to equip us for this work. And he shows us what we need to do in order to grow in our trials as God intends. We need to Go to God with a real faith and ask for his wisdom. And then, as we discover in his word what that wisdom is, we act on it in faith. Today, as we look at verses 9 through 11, we're going to see an example of a specific area in which trials can abound for believers, an area where we desperately need the wisdom of God to think and respond rightly. And that is the area of money, of finances, and specifically our thinking when it comes to wealth and poverty. And we're going to examine how we are to act and think through two points today, two points. Point number one, that which is lasting. And point number two, that which is passing. That which is lasting, that which is passing. And in fitting with the titles of the points, that which is lasting is going to be long. (laughs) And that which is passing is going to be short. So let's look at verses 9 through 11 again. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So we see here in verse 9, And at the beginning of verse 10, our first point, that which is lasting, that which is lasting. And we need to recognize right away the meaning of the word that James uses that is translated in our ESV as lowly and in other translations as of humble circumstances. It generally does have a meaning that is more in reference to a low station in life. Uh, to, to something or someone who is unimportant or undistinguished. It doesn't necessarily have to refer to finances. And even though, but even though James might have that sense in mind here, he definitely has the financially lowly 
in mind. The poverty stricken in mind. And we know this because of how this lowly brother is contrasted with the materially rich person in verse 10. So we know that though he might have other intentions in that use, he definitely has financially lowly in mind here. And again, of course, James would deal with this because, as we just said, economic stress was most likely one of the greatest trials that these early believers are dealing with. And it makes so much sense that James would follow up that last section on seeking wisdom in true faith and not being a double-minded man because it is in our understanding of wealth that we tend to most regularly fall into double-mindedness. We can easily fall into the tendency of being those who confess all of the glories of the gospel and what it entails for us and for our eternity, therefore what our priorities in this life should be, but then only to have our attitude and practice when it comes to money expose that maybe we don't truly believe what we say we do. And that is the case for both the rich and poor believer alike. We joyfully and regularly confess that God is our gracious and sovereign Heavenly Father, that He is the one who provides all of our needs. And yet many times we just take what we have for granted and neglect thanking Him because really we actually reveal that we believe this is something that that I bought with my money, with the money that I have from the job in which I worked. We also fall on the other side and become anxious and fearful, doubters of the good and sovereign God that we proclaim. When we can't see sure financial footing ahead, we start to doubt. Or when we see major unforeseen expenses pop up, we start to get anxious. So it makes a lot of sense that immediately following the command, ask God for wisdom in trials and the warning against being a double-minded person who is exposed in trials, that of course James goes straight to this topic. In fact, there is actually an untranslated linking word that we can see in the Greek in verse 9, but it's not in our ESV Bibles. It's the coordinating conjunction de, which is often translated as but which would link verses uh, 8 and 9. That's why if you have a NAS translation, uh, the beginning of verse 9 is, but let the brother of humble circumstances. So we see again, I want to point this out again, that even though the book of James is often referred to as the Proverbs of the New Testament, and that is appropriate because of the many pithy commands and illustrated truisms, we still need to understand the intentional structure that James intends for us to see. He really is intentional about what comes next in each section. Especially in light of verse 12 of following, verse 12 which says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Especially in light of that, we, we, we understand that this isn't merely unconnected commands to the poor and rich. It's still in the context of trials. And the first word in the Greek text in verse 9 is the word translated as boast. So that word boast is actually the first word there. It's the emphasis. It's a form of the word kahalmai. 
And it usually has, that word usually has a negative sense. It's used as a sinful expression of pride that usually should not describe a Christian. It's an imperative verb even, so so it's a command. So it's a command to boast. So it's somewhat striking to see following the warning of being an unstable, double-minded man that the very next word is the command to boast. So don't be double-minded, now boast, my brother. Paul uses that word 35 times in his writings, and he almost always uses it negatively. It's almost always a reference to sinful action. And when it is usually used, it's to condemn those who are glorying in or rejoicing in or proudly identifying in either mankind or more prominently in themselves and their own accomplishments. That's that's what it means when it's usually used. But whenever the word is used in a way that directs our boasting to boasting in God, it is meant to convey a strong disposition of rejoicing or glorying, directed outward, away from ourselves and towards God, this boasting is a good thing. That's how Paul uses the word in Philippians 3.3, where he says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That word glory there is this same word. And also in Romans 5.11, Paul says, More than that, we also rejoice in God. That's that same word. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So the word the, the word boast is a good translation, it is, but we need to understand it as in reference to when it's pointing outward towards God, it's a good thing. So when it is used in this positive sense, the point really is to glory or rejoice in the realities of our union in Christ, to let that be our focus and let that be where our attention lies. What we have eternally as opposed to what we do or don't have in the more temporal sense. So James is ministering to these believers who are really struggling with many trials. But as you look throughout the book, one of the main trials does seem to be the struggle with poverty and oppression of poor by the rich. He's ministering to them right here. And his first word of instruction to them in this area is the command to boast, to boast. And he speaks first to the brother who is poor. And this is important. Notice that he does qualify this poverty with the word brother, indicating that this is a command and a reality for the believing poor person. The believing poor person. There is an exaltation that the poor Christian can boast in that is not available to every poor person. And this is good for us to realize in our day and age especially because more and more frequently people use passages like this and other passages in James to indicate that just being poor is some sort of virtue in and of itself. That's not the case. Just being poor doesn't mean that all of the promises to lowly believers made throughout the Bible automatically apply to you does not put you in some sort of elevated position before God. 
It is only when your poverty leads you to a dependence on God. When you recognize the primacy of your spiritual state of poverty over your physical state of poverty before a holy God. When you understand that you stand before this God with nothing to offer that you are completely unable of purchasing salvation with any good works in your life, as we just confessed, that you are dependent on the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, that he lived a perfect life of obedience in your place, that he paid the ransom for us, that he satisfied the wrath of God toward our sins in his death on the cross, that the tremendous debt that we owed has been paid in full in Christ on the cross. It is when you recognize your own spiritual bankruptcy, your own spiritual poverty before a holy God, and then repent of your sins and place your trust in this gospel and are then saved. It is only this poor person who has a position of exaltation from God to boast in. And this person will then go on to live their life in total devotion and obedience to God, rejoicing in their salvation with minimal concern for this temporal life. And many times, obedience to Christ as their Lord results in trials of poverty, as it often does for those who are being persecuted for their faith. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, though they are walking faithfully and obediently to Christ, they are just not able to rise above the poverty line. But contrary to much thinking, there is no inherent virtue in just existing as a lost, poor person. You don't get to claim God's mercy to the weak, to the impoverished, and to the suffering if you still stand as an unrepentant, proud rebel against him. If being materially poor actually increased your standing before God in some virtuous way, then there would be no commands to Christians to help the poor. Why would we want to get them out of that state? Now, hell will be filled with people who went through this life sleeping in mansions and people who went through this life sleeping on the streets. It is important that we understand this because the narrative that just existing in a state of poverty with no regard to the circumstances surrounding that poverty or no concern for what, if any, opportunities and abilities are available to the person in poverty, that just being poor with no repentance of sin and no desire to joyfully follow Christ merits some kind of virtue, that has become quite popular in our country and even among many churches to just act like this is the case. But the responsibility of the church is to continue to call such people to repentance of sins and belief in the gospel. But James here is giving a command of encouragement to the materially poor Christian. The command is actually a relatively simple concept. That is, it's not unfamiliar to us. It's the general idea of focusing on what is truly important, what is eternal, rather than that which we are constantly tempted to believe is important. And these believers that James is writing to are experiencing a trial of poverty, unlike what most of us have ever experienced. Though I know some of you have, 
but the kind of poverty that made it extremely difficult to provide for their family, a poverty that was many times connected to their profession of faith. They were ostracized and persecuted because they are looked down upon and mistreated by the Jewish community for being Christians, and also neglected and looked down upon by the wealthy elites for being Christians. And even though most of us have not yet faced this kind of poverty, the the principle still holds true for us. When we are discouraged over lack of material wealth, when we are in, in a place where we look around at others and are just like, boy, if I just had a little more money, I could do this, or I could get this done, and everything would just be fine. Maybe it causes consternation when we get in those situations where financial opportunity is pitted against commitment to the church or even our family. Maybe it happens to us when we get, you know, get into our worn out car or we're patching up that old leak again. All of these, those issues, those problems, just a little more money, just a little more money would take care of this. If I could just have that. Or maybe even, even now, especially when we're frustratingly trying to move our money around in our budget as we deal with inflation, wondering, all right, what's the next category that I can afford to, to bring down so that I can put more into groceries or into gas or, or whatever it may be? You know, as we're, as we're working and the math just simply doesn't work anymore and you have to rework your financial plan, your financial goals for the future, you got to do it one more time. Even though we might not be in a place where we are wondering if we're going to be able to eat tomorrow, we're not there. Even though we're not there, though, financial trials still exist for us, and they can be frustrating. They can be exhausting as we pour time and energy into anxiousness and worrying. And this command of James and the principle behind it holds true for us. Though we might feel poor and lowly, Maybe even look it. That is not the reality. When it comes to what really matters, what is true and lasting, we are rich. We have an inheritance. We have an exaltation to boast in. That word translated as exaltation just has a, it has a literal meaning of height, just higher. It refers to one in a position of high importance, one in prominence. There's a call to rejoice in what is true, not in what might appear to be true at the time. Our actual inheritance, the one that lasts, the one that is eternal, is so much greater than any mere earthly comfort. It's the inheritance that we already possess in part and one day will possess in full. It's the inheritance that we read about in Ephesians 1, 11 through 14, where Paul says, "...in him we have obtained an inheritance." having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance 
until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. In that passage, we are reminded of the great high position all those who have hoped in Christ have, that we've already obtained. And we're told that the Holy Spirit that indwells you is the guarantee. You can look at your life. You can look at the work of the Holy Spirit, the one whom you have seen at work in your life, the one who has opened your eyes to the truth of the gospel, to the truth of the word of God, the one that that you have seen work powerfully in you to sanctify you and to change you, the one whose presence is, is all that you can point to it to explain why you used to be a slave to this sin and now you're not the one that has changed your desires, the one whose fruit you now see unexplainably coming forth from the life of one who once was so in love with sinful desires, so in love with the world. That same spirit is the one that we look to and his work is what we look to to remind ourselves of the actual high and exalted position that we have been guaranteed As we grow in Christ, we see in ourselves lives which can't be explained by anything other than the regenerating power of God poured out upon us in grace and mercy. And we are reminded that these are the first fruits pointing toward a certain inheritance that is already ours in part, that's merely waiting its final fulfillment. No matter what you see now, no matter what you experience now, You can exalt in this truth. You can glory in it. You can rejoice in it. This is a far greater position than the most wealthy in this life can even begin to comprehend. So, for an illustration, imagine being a prisoner serving a life sentence. You're just sitting in your cell day after day, go by, go by, go by, waiting to die. And then one day you receive word that you have been pardoned. You are given a signed document by the president himself pardoning you even though you are guilty. And you know you're guilty. A deal was made that you had no part in, but your freedom was a part of that deal. Some final paperwork needs to be filled out, but later that day you will be walking out of prison a free man. And then... Imagine that not only that, but another messenger comes to your cell door and informs you that the same person that made the deal to acquire your freedom has also left you a billion-dollar inheritance. And it's waiting for you in the mansion that you're going to be sleeping in that night. This is a certainty. You have the guarantee in front of you. You only have to live a few more hours in this prison, and then freedom and riches are yours. But since you have a few hours left... To burn, you decide, I'm going to kill some time. I'll sit down and with some fellow inmates, and and we're going to play the game of Monopoly. I I don't have any idea what goes on in prison, how it works. I assume they can play board games from time to time. If not, this is just an illustration. (laughs) So you're playing Monopoly. The game doesn't go well. The other guys are getting all the good properties. All you've got is, you know, Baltic Avenue and one of the railroads, maybe the electric company. You keep not getting to go, having to go back. You're getting the bad chance cards. You're just barely hanging on. You get in that place where you're actually using the combinations of ones and fives to pay, you know, when you know it's bad. You start getting upset that things are going so poorly for you. 
You get visibly angry and you start coveting these other, these other guys' houses and hotels. You wonder what it would be like to be you know, Guido on your right. You're, you're in prison with Italian mafia, I guess, right? <laughs> like this guy on your right. You're getting upset. You're wondering how, how are you going to possibly stay in the game without getting, going bankrupt before you have to leave and go home to your mansion? You're filled with anxiousness and worry every time the dice is rolled. You start to wonder what life would be like if you had Park Place and Boardwalk. If you could gloat like this guy on your right. You start wondering why, why, why did the person who purchased my freedom and gave me my inheritance, can't they help me in this situation too? Has he abandoned me? Doesn't he care? You've lost sight of the reality of this situation. You're forgetting the lasting possession that you have, and you're focused on this temporal game of monopoly. This is just an illustration. It's not meant to minimize the very real and difficult financial trials that many of us find ourselves in, but it is meant to show the distance between what is important, what is truly important, and what we deal with here. Our lives here really do matter. What we do and how we live does have true and lasting importance. But this illustration does help us to think about financial trial in right perspective. Our earthly wealth, what we have or don't have here, has no bearing on the reality of the exalted standing that James calls us to boast in. And it is just as silly for us to become obsessed with it and start to doubt God over our financial troubles here. So when we find ourselves anxious and worried about our financial situation here, just like that inmate needs to be reminded of the culmination of the freedom and the inheritance that he has been given that is just hours away, so we also must remind ourselves, I'm going to boast in what is mine. I have salvation in the gospel. I have reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ, who is mine forever. I might have to scrape by here for a while longer, but what I have now and what awaits is glorious. That's exactly what Peter is speaking of, this exact truth in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 6, where he, said, where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So, the poor believer is to boast in his exaltation And in a similar way, the rich believer is called to boast in his humiliation. We need to pause for a second because there there are many people who think that James is not referencing the believing rich here. 
And actually, a large amount of my sermon prep time was spent looking into the arguments both ways as to whether or not James has unbelieving or believing rich people in mind. Most of the arguments for saying that he's talking about unbelieving rich has to do with how the rich are seen as oppressing the church in most of the rest of the book. And many hold the view that, and, and actually many hold the view that I mentioned earlier, that uh, there's so many hold on to that, that there is some kind of virtue in just being poor because you're poor, and therefore in a similar way, being rich then places you in the category of oppressor automatically, as if just possessing material wealth is something that needs to be atoned for or repented of in some way. But the dominant view throughout church history has been that James is referring to a fellow brother in Christ who is wealthy in this passage, in this part of the book. And there are good reasons for believing this. Because if he was talking to the same unbelieving rich oppressors who he mentions later on in the book, then he would be giving this odd command to a hypothetical person who is not even reading the letter. This would be a, it'd be a purely sarcastic statement meant only for encouraging the poor. It'd have the, the feeling of kind of making fun of someone who isn't in the room with you in order to make the, the in crowd kind of feel better about themselves. And while it, it's possible that James could do something like that, it seems unlikely. Throughout the Bible, the rich are often criticized for their trust in riches, or for their selfish neglect, but they are not criticized and condemned just for being rich. Again, that is more of an our culture type of thing to think. We just saw this, right, in Luke, the example of Zacchaeus, the rich man who, upon repentance, immediately turns around and starts using his wealth for good. If James had unbelieving rich people in mind, then verses 10 and 11 are said to be referring to their final eschatological judgment. But verses 10 and 11 bear way too many similarities to other passages in the Bible, like Psalm 103 that we read earlier, that are merely referring to the transient nature of riches in the rich man, not final judgment. And also, judging by some of the instructions in 4.13 through 17 that we'll get to in years Judging by some of those instructions, it seems almost certain that there are wealthy believers in their midst, so it does make sense that James would want to instruct them rather than call them to boast in an eternal condemnation. Grammatically, it also makes the most sense because both the verb and the subject from the main clause of verse 9 should be supplied also to verse 10. So you notice that the verb to boast isn't in verse 10. It's only used once at the beginning of verse 9. It doesn't make sense to understand to boast as the command implied in verse 10 and not also brother as the modifier of the subject implied. So the command should literally read something like, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and let the rich brother boast in his humiliation. It doesn't make sense for the one imperative verb to be a command that must be followed by both the real poor Christian who is reading the letter and then have that same command and that same straightforward kind of weight of that command be given to a hypothetical, unbelieving rich person who isn't even reading the letter, but just as a sarcastic command to boast in an eternal destruction. It doesn't make sense. 
So we are to understand that James is commanding the rich Christian to boast in his humiliation. And this humiliation is meant to be the opposite of the, of the previous word for exaltation. The idea is glorying in his low status or in the fact that he has been brought low. And as, in fact, it has the same type of concern. It's the same type of concept as a passage like Jeremiah 9, 23, and 24. And in fact, it, it's hard to imagine, and most commentators agree, that James doesn't have Jeremiah 9, 23, and 24 in mind as he writes this command. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So this is not a condemnation of the mighty man for being mighty or the rich man for being rich. But it is a call to them to not trust in their might or their riches, but to trust in the Lord instead, to boast in him. So too here, James calls the rich brother to boast in the fact that he has been brought low. That he, that he would heed the words of Jeremiah and refuse to put any stock or trust in his material wealth, but instead in the fact that his pride in material wealth has been destroyed by God. And he now knows that it is only his eternal possession that has any true significance. The wealthy brother rejoices because his eyes have been opened to the fact that though he might possess much in the eyes of the world, he knows that none of it is of any real lasting value. He rejoices that unlike so many rich and wealthy in this world who wear themselves out trying to accumulate more and more wealth, who do whatever it takes in order to pursue greater and greater worldly comfort and worldly power, God has mercifully reached down from heaven and saved him from that, changed his heart from that futile way of living. He has been freed from the bondage of serving his possessions to becoming one who is now able to steward his possessions in service to the God who saved him. Again, just like Zacchaeus, this was the salvation that he experienced, the ability to boast in the truth that all of his wealth is nothing that Christ had mercy on him and he made the wealth that he once lived for into that which now could be used in service to the new master he now lives for. And this is a good command for us to hear because even though there are times and circumstances when we can identify with the poor brother in verse 9, the reality is, for most of us, we probably have more in common with the rich brother. I know most of you have just automatically put yourself in a different category, and I'm asking you to not do that. Look at history and put yourself in the category of the wealthy also. 
It is so easy for us to become enamored with wealth and possessions, to fall into the trap of living for different variations of the accumulation of stuff, of style, of experiences that come with greater and greater expanding wealth. So easy for us to do that. So it's good for us to heed the command of refusing to glory in those things and instead to rejoice in the truth that God in his kindness has freed us from that lie and has humbled us before him. We glory in the fact that in reality we have nothing. And we do this because it took, that we, we can glory in this because it took the work of God to reveal that to us. God had to open our eyes to that. We've seen in Luke also that Christ warns us, warns his followers that it is difficult for the rich to get into heaven. And that is because things are going well enough for them that it is harder for them to see their need. It's easy for the rich to be that third soil in the parable of the sower, the one that hears the word, but the cares of the world the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it shows itself to be unfruitful. But the rich believer is able to boast in his humiliation because he knows that like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Again, it took God to open his eyes to that, to not live for the life of the grass that's going to die but live for eternity. Again, that, that, the end of verse 10, it's not a reference to eternal destruction as some have argued. That word translated as pass away, it, it never anywhere else in the Bible refers to judgment, but just refers to the transient nature of something. It means to, to pass by or to come to an end. So this is another thing that separates the wealthy person from the wealthy Christian, the wealthy Christian lives like he's going to die. The rich man who does not know Christ sits in fear at a funeral because of the stark reminder of the reality that he tries not to think about, that all that he has worked hard for, all that he has, all that he lives for will one day be useless to him. But the Christian whom God has blessed with material possessions, is able to sit in a funeral and worship. Worship the God that has kindly humbled him and shown him the futility of trusting in his own wealth and abilities. And has graciously given him the gift of desperate dependence on his Savior. So, just as the command to the poor brother to boast in his high state is actually a command to think rightly about the gospel in light of your poverty, so too the command to the rich brother to boast in his low state is a command for him to think rightly about the gospel in light of his wealth. What James does so brilliantly here is to use this command to bring the rich Christian and the poor Christian to the, to, to the level place before God that all believers find themselves in the moment that they are saved. 
This is so different from the way that so many of the, of the kind of woke churches are trying to use the Bible's teaching on rich and poor to promote some sort of, of, of hybrid Christian socialism where the rich and poor are brought to the same place by trying to eliminate the categories. That is not God's interest. He's not looking to make the poor rich or the rich poor. He desires the rich Christian and the poor Christian alike to boast only in all that they have in Christ and then to bring them both together in unity in his church. That the Christian blessed with material possessions would live in a way that is consistent with the gospel that has saved him by glorying in his humility before God through Christ, and that the poor Christian will live in their poverty in a way that is consistent with the gospel that has saved him by glorying in the truth that any earthly riches that he could ever receive are as nothing compared to the rich inheritance that he now has in Christ. This type of thinking is an example of the wisdom from God that is necessary to live rightly through trials. To live in such a way that you will not waste a trial, but grow in godliness through it. And this is and this is absolutely necessary that rich and poor come together in the church and both of them commit their earthly lives to live for that which is lasting because in the normal course of life, we see this division between rich and poor fracturing every other type of society, every other type of communal living that we see around us. Rich and poor almost against each other in every country, in every government, local and national, political systems, in, in work relationships, in friend relationships, in, in neighborhoods even. The division and confrontation between rich and poor shatters and destroys so much, and it is just the natural way things play out in a sinful world. But these two positions of identification which caused so much antagonism in every other area of life, God redeems it in his church. They're actually a strength in the church because it is here in the church where we understand that it is God who makes rich and poor. God is the one who distributes gifts, both spiritual and material He is the one that comes in and chooses people out of all sorts of stations in life, regenerates them, and then places each one here as an integral member, a necessary member of the local church. He knows when he saves us. He knows before he saves us. He knows from before creation what each person does or does not have, what each person will or will not have, and he perfectly places them where he likes so that they may be the central part of the body of Christ that he has designed them to be. 
This is remarkable. The church is the one place in all of life where rich and poor come together in true unity, not envious of one another, not trying to get some sort of material good out of each other, not looking down on or despising one another, but rejoicing together in the kindness and wisdom of God in uniting us one to another. Our status as rich or poor doesn't matter. We together boast in the same gospel. A gospel that has saved us out of different circumstances, but for the exact same purpose. So it is quite appropriate and ingenious of James to include this specific example in the midst of a section on trials, because as he is trying to build unity within the body of Christ, we remember that it is in times of trial that we are brought together the most. John MacArthur, in speaking on this passage, said, trials are the great equalizer, bringing all of God's children to dependence on him. Because, rich or poor, when you lose a loved one, when you receive a terminal diagnosis, when you're dealing with relational suffering within your family, marital strife, when persecution comes. In all of these trials, rich and poor Christian alike rely upon the same grace of God to persevere and to grow in sanctification. And that grace comes so often through the love and kindness of fellow and brothers and sisters in the body of Christ in whatever way that they have been gifted by God, using those gifts to minister to each other. So, whether we are rich or poor, whether our financial trial comes in the form of frustration of lack, or from pride of plenty, God calls every believer to look past the temporal and glory in that which is lasting. And that brings us to a second point to barely spend any time on. Point two, that which is passing. That which is passing. So James follows up the positive command to boast in that which is lasting by reinforcing the wisdom in that command through illustrating the futility of living for that which is passing. Technically, he began this line of thinking at the end of verse 10, and then he expands on it now. But since we've already commented on that last phrase in 10, let's just focus on verse 11 for now. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. The connecting word for that you see there should be seen as connecting this thought to the entirety of verses 9 and 10. So, so it should be seen not only as an expansion of the warning to the, to the rich Christian, but also as a reminder to the poor Christian of what it is that they are actually missing out on when it comes to being poor. Not much. In this verse, James is almost certainly referencing Isaiah 40, 6 through 8, a familiar passage which says, A voice says, Cry, 
And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So he has that in mind. All commentators pretty much agree that that's what he's thinking of when he writes this. And actually in, in 1 Peter, in 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25, you can write that down and look it up later. And Peter also quotes this passage from Isaiah. He does it a little more directly than James does. And commentators agree that this indicates that this teaching This understanding, uh, the the reminder of the passing away of our earthly lives and the passing away of earthly riches, the passing away of earthly beauty was probably a basic foundational teaching to that early impoverished, persecuted church. It's important for us also to constantly remind ourselves that we ourselves, along with all of the worldly things that we are tempted to invest in, it's all passing away. That scorching heat that withers the grass can also be translated as a scorching wind. Some translations have it that way. The scorching wind that was often used to describe this, the hot, dry desert wind that the the people who lived in Jerusalem knew about. A wind that would quickly dry up and kill grass and flowers that would come about quickly. So flowers that were beautiful and bloom are just burned and dead a couple of days later when this wind would come through. So too is all that we invest in this life. It doesn't matter how much we spend to extend these years of physical life, what we do to increase our health. It doesn't matter how much we spend to look and feel as good as possible during this earthly life. The grass withers, the flower falls, and so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And it is so kind of God to continually give us these types of reminders, not just here, but throughout Scripture, including, again, Psalm 103 that we read today. You can go back and look at that. You see this reminder there also. Because he knows how easily and frequently we fall into the trap of living for that which is passing So God kindly gives us multiple reminders throughout Scripture. I'm certain that this isn't the first time you've been reminded of these things in a sermon or a Bible study, and I'm most likely won't be the last. But we are going to continue to need them for the rest of our lives because in this life, we are constantly surrounded by, and we can never truly escape both the intentional and unintentional advertisements of the world, pulling us to live for something temporal, to trade that which is lasting for that which is passing. But in his kindness, God continually, like a loving father dealing with a distracted and impatient child, continues to use passages like this to to gently move our heads back to his face, put our focus back in the right direction again and again. And then he ends verse 11 with a a helpful reminder that there is no goal to reach or that can be reached when it comes to worldly endeavors. 
You'll never have enough if you live for those things. Such a great reminder for us as we fill up our calendars, as we fill up our lives with with dates and projects, experiences we want. And there's no condemnation here about the type of pursuits that the rich man is pursuing as he fades away. He's not condemning that. It's just a reminder that he's going to die in the midst of them. So you have this this final lesson in this phrase of not only the the frivolousness of living for the pursuits of this light, but the stark reminder that even in this life, there is no satisfaction there. No satisfaction in our pursuits. No one ever dies having seen all they ever wanted. No one ever dies having accomplished all they wanted. No one ever dies with a fully complete to-do list. Yet how easy it is to forget even this simple truth. I, like you, I'm sure, have a running list of projects in the house that I'd like to have done. Things that I'd like to replace, things that I'd like remodeled. There's places I'd like to go, vacations I'd like to take, things I'd like to do, places I want to take my family to experiences I want us to have. But even as we check things off of that list, more always gets added to it. And it's not necessarily bad to have that list, to check things off of that list. Well, as long as we're being a faithful, a good and faithful steward of all that God has given us and our time and resources. But we have to guard ourselves against any type of hope we have in the completion of these things. Enjoy them when they come, but let's not base our life on them. If God allows us to have any of these things, that's great, but we have to live in the certainty that each one of us will die in the middle of our pursuits. There will be something that you wanted to experience for the first time, or one more time, when you die. There'll be a project you never finished, a book you never read, an activity you never tried, a place you never visited... Like even in the really good things, like, like your role in the church and, and, and your family, there will be more you could have said. There will be more you could have done. You will leave behind a family that hasn't finished growing. There will be grandkids or great-grandkids you never meet. Prayerfully, our church will go on to baptize new believers that you will never see. People you'll never get to disciple, a ministry that you never get to see grow to where you know it could. You'll most likely die between conferences you want to go to, between summer VBSs that you want to be involved in, between Lord's Day worship services, in the middle of a sermon series that you'll never finish. The reminder that we will all fade away in the midst of our pursuits is just another way to remind us that even though we are to steward wisely and even enjoy some of that which is passing, we are to rejoice and glory only in that which is lasting. Because unlike all of the projects and calendar items that will never be finished, filling up our lives, it can never lead to any type of true fulfillment The unperishable, undefiled inheritance that belongs to all of those who are in Christ, rich and poor alike, 
Brothers and sisters, it ends in the fullness of joy. It ends in our ultimate satisfaction. And it's a satisfaction in the passing away, not only of all earthly riches, but of every part of this sin-stained world. Our satisfaction comes in that which is lasting in hopes of that which is passing. Revelation 21, 1 through 4, I'll close with this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her, for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Father, we are indeed so thankful for your word, your kindness to us, your mercy to us in our weakness. The, the weakness that we all have to continue running back towards that which is fading away, that which is passing away, that in which we have no lasting inheritance. And you kindly and gently continue to use your word to refocus us, to put us right back on the right path that we run off of. God, I pray that you would help us, help, help Grace Church to be a church that rich and poor alike come together in joyful unity in the gospel that has saved us and brought us together. And that we would live for that which you have given us as the purpose of your church, joyfully looking on to the true finish line, the true day, one day that is coming when sin is no more, tears are no more, pain is no more, crying is no more, and we will dwell with our God forever. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.